going to begin by reading a psalm together. This is Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, for night and day your hand was heavy upon me. Your strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Selah. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me. You forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely, when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach that person. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. The psalmist writes those words to us this morning. Um, today we're going to spend some time in the Word. Um, I'm going to do something I haven't had to do before, which is a little bit of a disclaimer. And we did dismiss the BLAST students and BLAST workers, which is usually um, K through 4, I believe, officially. Right now, we're actually doing 5th and 6th grade also uh, because of the upcoming Christmas program, which is on the 22nd, I believe, this year. Is that right? Okay, and so if you're a fifth or sixth grader, you're welcome to go back as well. Um, but I also wanted to let you guys know that today's sermon is PG, uh, parental guidance required, right? Um, we're going to talk about something today that might not be comfortable for everyone in the room. And I was telling Dan right before service, I wasn't sure how I was going to do this. And I've already screwed it up because I was going to basically tell you if you, wanted, if you were uncomfortable you wanted to leave, you could leave while the Blast kids were leaving. <laughs> but it's too late. You're all stuck here now. No, I'm kidding. If there's anyone that's not comfortable, um, you're welcome to leave. We won't be offended. Um, we're going to talk. I was thinking about it, actually, when I thought about this whole parental guidance idea, you know, and there's nothing I'm going to say today in the sermon that I wouldn't say to my fifth grade daughter, honest to God. Olivia, when she was here, I would not be concerned about what I'm going to teach today. But our society has this weird relationship with the issue of sex, and that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to see what the Bible has to say about what God's intent for sex is. So some of you might be going, oh God, my parents never even talked to me about sex, you know, and now you're going to talk about it in church, oh no, right? But the Word, and God is so gracious to us, and so as I pray, here's the plan. As I pray, and as the kids flee the room, right? Right now, no, if you want to, if you got to go, go. Don't, nobody's be upset with you, but uh, the rest of us, let's join together in prayer. Uh, Father God, today as we come into your house to uh, hear what your plan is for our life, to know you more fully and to understand the fullness of your word, the fullness of your gospel indeed, of how you are, you are um, providential over all things, that you are sovereign over everything in our lives, Father God, we pray that we would come to you for our answers. We would come to you with our questions. We would come to you with our hurts. And today, Father, we come from a world that's broken and twisted, and you know how it feels inside of us, how we're twisted up on some things. And so, Father, we pray that today you would help to un twist some of those knots for us that we could see more clearly. We do pray, Father, today with everything that's in us that we would surrender to you and that we would make ourselves available to you. And Father, I pray that all the words shared today would be glorious to you and bringing honor to your name and would be a remedy for your people, would be a hope and a help and a clear way forward. Give me clarity of speech, clarity of thought as I present your word today because your word is true, right, beautiful, and just. And that's what we want to teach today. So help us to do that, Father. Help us to hear rightly and to apply it to our lives. May we be 
glorifying to you at all times and all ways. And we'll give you praise and glory for that. In Jesus' name, amen. It's really funny because um, you might not think the Bible has a lot of conversation about sex, but it actually does. Uh, it's kind of funny. Um, our society, and I want to start here where we're at, I feel like, and the title actually isn't about sex, the title is called Sexy, you know, sexy. Um, we live in a culture where everything is saturated in sex in some way. I don't know if you really see this or not, but right now, um, and, and by the way, who went Black Friday shopping? Anybody? Black, you can raise your hand probably. That's right. I'm glad you survived it. <laughs> it sounds like there were fist fights and taserings and all kind of madness, right? But um, our culture sells, man. We sell everything to each other, right? And including the gospel sometimes. Like, we sell the gospel to one another. Um, but the truth is that uh, um, much of that salesmanship is inundated with sexual innuendo, or they're sexy ads. I, I don't know if you've seen uh, any of the Lexus car commercials. Anybody who drives a Lexus, man, good for you. I'm not down on Lexus. But their commercials, they're just selling more than a car, right? I mean, the way they shoot the interior, the way they show up going down the road, the reflection, the, the people and the ads. I mean, everything is just sexy, right? I was telling my wife, Chris, there is a chocolate commercial. I don't know if you've noticed the chocolate commercials. Those are usually geared toward women, I think, I don't know, I mean, I watch them, right, but I like chocolate, <laughs> but the ad seems so sensual. It's like there's a guy in a kitchen in, like, Italy somewhere making this chocolate. Where's chocolate from? You might know. Huh? What did somebody say, France? Does anybody know where it comes from? Who invented? Well, anyway, there's this guy, he's, like, dashing, tall, handsome with a chef's hat, and he's, like, sampling the chocolate out of the thing, and there's a woman, and she's in a bubble bath, and she's, like, sinking into the tub, and she's in ecstasy, and then she unwraps this, and she eats this chocolate, and my wife says, that's not a sexy ad. I'm like, what? <laughs> Can we talk? <laughs> right? Or maybe even the things that are being sold to our kids. Things like Barbie dolls, perfect people, beautiful people. Man, we don't want to be ugly. We want to be sexy, right? It's a funny thing. But I think the way that the world gets us twisted, and I'm not down, man. It's just they're taking advantage of something that God has built into us to desire this good thing. That's the truth. But here's what I would say. Today when I use the word um, sexy, I will use it in the idea of it being uh, sex-ish, <laughs> right? I mean, I think everything that the Lexus ads and the chocolate ads and the Barbie dolls, it's not really about what God intended. It's an ish. It's sort of kind of about that. And many of us can lament being in our culture. We can say, oh, how will we ever survive? How, will we ever, how can we ever be pure in this society we live in? But there's, there's no excuse as a matter of fact, um, I love this, and I want you to hear this, um, but in the book of James, there's this quote, and, and it, James is a half-brother of Jesus, and he says this, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, because God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does God tempt anyone. So anytime you find your heart being tempted towards something, we can't be like, oh, the Lord's tempting me, because the Bible clearly says that God isn't in the temptation business. He's not interested in, in tantalizing you into a, a road that's displeasing to him and dishonoring to you and those around you. It's not the work that he does in our lives. 
And so today, as we, as we talk about what um, God's plan is, I just hope that we can just hear what the Bible says. It, it's a funny thing, and I said to you that um, maybe you're not going to be comfortable or whatever, but I, I don't know if you've given your child a Bible or not in your household. I hope you have. Um, we gave one to our children when they were quite young. And uh, I remember we found a, a drawing in our daughter's room. It was very artfully done. It was on a dry erase board, but it was, I tried to find it, I couldn't find it, but it was a picture of Adam and Eve, right? Um, and, and it was a very articulate drawing about the garden and all of that stuff. But what's funny about it is this. In my daughter's drawing of Adam and Eve, you see, she had them hiding behind a bush, and she had them covering up. Matter of fact, the drawing was so specific, we thought one of our kids, our boys did it, didn't we? We said, oh, this, or one of her friends, you know, our, our daughter's too young. What was she, maybe like third grade, fourth grade? Like, she can't understand all of this. And many times when we teach sexuality in the church, we teach it from that point, ashamed, right? They were hiding from God. But that's not how the Bible starts. If you would turn with me, to the very first page of the Bible. It's going to be Genesis 1. And we're going to hear what God's um, intention is for us. And it doesn't start with us cowering in the bushes ashamed. Starting in uh, chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, the word says this. Then God said, let us make man, that's mankind, in our image, in our likeness, And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the livestock over the earth and over all the creatures that move on the ground. I want you to see a couple things here right away. God says, let us make mankind in our image. Like, there's this great creative endeavor. He's been creating everything, the stars and everything, light and darkness and all the days of creation. And then he says, and now let's create mankind in our own image. Let them rule over the fish of the sea. 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Listen to it. Male and female, he created them. So men and women are endowed with the image of their creator. Beautiful, pure, holy, right, good. 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and every living creature that moves among the ground. So he makes them. I love this. And not only does he say they're good, but he blesses them. He blesses them. And he says, be fruitful and increase in number. This is God's plan, and it's a good plan. In case you don't believe me, there's, there's two creation accounts, not only really two accounts, if you can imagine with me. Genesis chapter 1 takes this huge look at the creation narrative and these seven days of creation, but then Genesis 2 comes back and kind of zooms in on this issue of the earth and all that's in it, including humanity. And we've heard this before, but I'm going to ask you to go ahead and look down to Genesis chapter 2 with me, and we're going to read these verses together. You've heard them before, but I want you to hear them again this morning. Genesis 2, 18 through 25. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. So now we're zoomed in this time of creation of mankind. I will make a helper suitable for him, a companion. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that became its name. 
So the man gave names to all livestock, the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, those that he was to rule over, right? But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. We've talked about this before, but Adam's looking for a mate, looking for someone that he needs. 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a sleep, and while he was asleep, took um, one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that was taken from man, and he brought her to Adam, and Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken from man. 24, for this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, the first time we get that term in the Bible, and they will become one flesh. They will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and here it is, they felt no shame. There it is, man. They felt. See, the creation narrative in Genesis doesn't start with them cowering behind the bushes in chapter 3. If you want to read how sin destroys God's idea of sex, read chapter 3. But here in two, it's beautiful, it's good, it's right, it's holy, it's pure. There's no shame in it. It's a good thing. I want to talk a little bit about this, right? Because there's a mystery in marriage. There's something that God does that's just complex and hard to understand from a human perspective. But literally, the two become one flesh. And I've talked to some of you about that. And, and um, I don't claim to understand all of it, but I just know that God is doing bigger stuff in us And in our marriages, um, when we're called to that, then he would be doing in any other way. And so it's a huge deal. And that's why everything about marriage is so painful, you know? That's why marriage is so hard. That's why your uh, husband or wife can speak to you in a way that hurts so severely because you're open to them. I want you to imagine, if you would, a literal picture of a man and woman becoming one flesh. You see, when you have one flesh, there's no defensive organs. There's nothing to keep pain from happening, right? Like, the way God designed us, we have this, like, rib cage that protects all of our vital organs, so if we're, like, hit here, you know, we got some protection. We're not going to die instantly. But if you can imagine becoming one flesh, there's all of a sudden this open area where there's nothing protecting you from someone else. And in that intimacy, can be great pain. And you can say things and you can hurt one another in powerful ways. But this was God's good intention that we be open to one another in this way. This was part of his creation narrative. He makes us um, to be intimate in this way. Some of us to be intimate that way. All right, so... All I want you to see here is that, you know, sex is this good gift from God, right? It's, it's intended for good, for blessing, for uh, hope, for a, a, a clear future, for just all goodness. It's a beautiful thing, okay? Now, we're going to turn into the New Testament because in case you think it's a little controversial, maybe, I don't think it really is to talk about this openly, um, the church has always had questions about how sex works, especially since Jesus came. Especially since Jesus came, because I'll tell you why. A couple of things interesting about Jesus is he never got involved with anyone that we, we know of. Like, there's no recording in the scripture of having a wife. He affirmed marriage by his first miracle at a wedding. He celebrated it. You know, his mother celebrated it. You know, the story about the water to wine. I mean, he was all about marriage, but he himself chose to not partake in it at all. And someone else that we're going to actually hear from today is the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul himself chose to not partake in it at all. He wanted to dedicate himself wholly unto the Lord, and he has some instruction in that way. So there's nothing about it that you're broken if you aren't called to be married. I want to be clear. 
But today the church is going to hear an answer because they had questions. And you can turn with me if you want. It's in chapter uh, 7 of 1 Corinthians. It's going to be one of the epistles, uh, which is just letters written to the church by the Apostle Paul. And uh, chapter 7, verse 1 through 9, we're going we're to spend some time here today. So I love the way this starts, because this is what Paul begins this section with. Now, for the matters that you wrote about, quote, it is good for a man not to marry. You see, mine has a little note there um, on it. Let me see what it says, uh, D. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. <laughs> you know I mean, you see right here in the first line there, there's always this discomfort with talking about it honestly. Some people kind of couch it in language. As a matter of fact, my heading there says marriage across it. You know what I mean? We want to reorient what God is saying. But the church had made this decision. I mean, some of the people in the church, after meeting Jesus, that there was no more purpose for marriage at all including sexual relations. So they'd written the Apostle Paul about this. Paul would have been the founder of their church, and they want to know what Paul thinks. Chapter 7 is Paul's response to this issue. Now, for the matters that you wrote to me about, it is not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. But since there's so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman have her own husband. You see, he's affirming here what God has called us into. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Verse 4, the wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to himself alone, but also to his wife. You see, Paul begins by talking about this big thing that God is doing through marriage. There's something that's, that's happening that people need to understand. And some people were already checking out of the process. They're like, we don't need this anymore. We got Jesus. But the truth is that for Paul, he believes that our decisions and how we behave uh, in our sexual relationships is a moral issue. It's a moral issue. It's in verse 2. Um, but since there is so much immorality, you see, that's why Paul writes back on this. Because there's so much immorality among you, this is how it should be. Right now in our culture, there's a huge conversation going on about sexuality. We know this, right? There's no secret in that. And it all comes down to people saying, well, we, we don't want any moralities. We don't want people telling us what we have to do and not do. And, and I would say, you know, that's fine if you are not under the authority of the sovereign God. But if you are, you have to begin to listen to what he has to say about these issues. There is a moral component to how we behave, especially in our desire to be with someone. It's just in there. There's no way around it. And, and many of us, and, and, and that's actually where we find in Genesis 3, the hiding in the bushes. Many of us choose to live a life hiding in shame because we won't enter into God's plan and purpose. We won't believe what he has said about his creation and, and the intent he has for it. And so instead, we hide from the moral truth, and we pretend that we're okay without God. But here, Paul says, it's a moral issue. And that's the first thing I want you to see. It's a moral issue. Uh, the second is that um, Paul is affirming of an ongoing relationship between a husband and wife, you know? Uh, there, there were husbands and wives who were so dedicated to Jesus, they're like, we're just going to follow Jesus and not really worry about our spouse anymore. That's what God's calling us to. And here Paul says, no, no, that's not, that's not what God has for you. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. I think it's telling. It's, it's crazy to me that Paul couches it in this idea of a marital duty, a responsibility 
to fulfill these desires in one another. I don't know if you have talked to your kids about God's plan for sex or not. I've had a chance to talk to my kids about it, probably not as much as I should or the way I, I, I mean, you always look back and go, gosh, I could have done that better. But I think his intent is that we would, we would, you know, what did it say in Genesis 2? It's for this reason the man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife until we one flesh. Like, it's going to be a motivational thing for men who are called to marriage. I've said this to you before, but it's going to get you off the couch and on the streets. You know what I mean? Some guys today, and I, I, I struggle with this so much because they want all this stuff, they don't want to work for it. And I don't mean work for it like, you know, trick and, you know, be suave and put on the right cologne or, you know, in the axe or whatever you guys are doing these days, right? But to, like, get a job and be responsible and dedicate yourself to someone and love them and die for them. And these, these images that saturate our culture... And, and we look at these pretend people with pretend lives, you know, on TV. And we look at our real wife or our real husband and we go, eh? What's that? Because God's like, stop doing this stuff and look at your spouse. Pour into them. I had a great conversation with a guy I did not know on my driveway. I was a complete stranger. He was hanging out with us. And I told him, he said, my, my, he said, something about your wife's pretty my wife. And I said, dude, your wife's as pretty as you want her to be. Right? I mean, it's beautiful. It's what God intends. You look at your spouse that way. You let all, all those passions that God has put into you to leave and cleave, and you just aim them at your spouse. Oh, God, fulfill those promises in this person for me. Let it do its work. It, 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 Paul, I love that he affirms it. It's a marital duty, right? And not a, <laughs> it's funny, building a marital duty like, well, here we go, you know what I mean? Off to the salt mines, you know? Come on! Like, it's good. There's no shame in it. It's beautiful. It's God-honoring. Culture don't tell you that. You know, it's like scandalous. Shh, don't talk about it. <laughs> but we'll talk about it, right? Uh, all behind closed doors, right? Make sure the lights are off. Yeah. It's a good God-given gift. And, and Paul affirms it here. Calls it a marital responsibility to one another. I want you to see in verse 4 what he says. And I got convicted about this this week. You know, praise God for the way his word cuts every direction. But the wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. You know, he said, to her one flesh. And the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Right? Somehow. And we read last, a few weeks ago in Ephesians, where it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That means all of a sudden when you're in a marriage relationship where God intends sexuality to happen, when you're in that relationship, you submit to one another. Like, you yield yourself to one another. But I, I think it goes beyond the bedroom. I think it's in a life. If your spouse has an opinion about the way your body is or something about you ought to listen to that. We ought to be, we ought to be dialed into that with them. The truth is that uh, you belong to each other. You belong to each other. And we are to yield ourselves to one another. That's a funny word, isn't it? Yield ourselves uh, to one another. It does not belong to us alone, but to our spouses. 
All right, here we go in verse 5. Do not deprive each other, and this is funny too, do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time. That means you both have to agree so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Paul says there's a good reason to not have sex in your marriage relationship, and that's to pray. There's this idea that it's a, a spiritual matter. It's a spiritual matter. He's like, you know, if you're going to take a break, agree on the break and do it to pray, but don't, don't do this whole thing where you just kind of forsake each other. Don't do this thing. And he says why here in a second. Read, read on with me. Um, then come together again. Here it is, because so that Satan won't tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You see? The idea is that if we don't willingly give ourselves, yield ourselves to one another, Satan has an opportunity to tempt us. In that. And I said to you all before, in our culture, we have young people who are doing all kind of crazy stuff with each other, and then we have married people who aren't doing anything with each other, and that's exactly not the way God intended it to be. It's not his intent. And we give Satan a foothold in our relationships. Right? He says, don't do that. Yield yourselves to one another. So that Satan won't get a foothold. He won't tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Because of your lack of self-control. It is really funny. It's a little off topic, but I'm just going to share it with you. I went to this conference. We were talking. I don't know who was actually at this conference. Um, oh, it was, a, it was a counseling conference we went to, and there was this guy talked about this. He said, there is more uh, sexual dysfunction in churches, he thinks, than almost anywhere else. Because we don't talk about it. We're uncomfortable with it, and we don't, we're not honest right? And um, he has this analogy when they talk, you know, specifics. He's like, okay, what do you do? He says it's like this. Have you ever been to a buffet? He's like, if you go to a buffet and you leave the buffet, he's like, you're full, right? You've had more than enough. And he said, when you walk out of a buffet, if someone comes to you and said, hey, I got a piece of chocolate for you. You want some chocolate? I mean, this happened to me yesterday, right? We went out and did a little shopping, and then uh, somebody said, hey, you want this piece? I'm, I'm so full. I mean, if I'll be sick if I eat any more. And this guy's like, that's how it should be with your husband and wife and your marital relationship. All these things that kind of tantalize us and titillate us and ask us to be tempted, we ought to be full. <sighs> no thanks, right? I've had all I can stand. That's a crazy standard to set. That dude's kind of nuts, you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, hey, honey, we're going to his church. That's what I told Chris. We're going to go hang out with him. No, you know what I mean? Like, but that's, there's some truth to that, isn't there? That when, whenever, you, whenever you've had enough, you don't need, you're not even worried about it anymore. And that's something that God's doing between the two of you. So that you come together, you won't be tempted, right? Devote yourself to one another. All right, verse six. I say this as a concession, not a command. Now here Paul's gonna turn it. He's gonna turn it back to this idea that you're not broken if you aren't with somebody. And this is something that we think we're, I think we're teaching young people. That, that you gotta hurry up and try it. You never know, you don't know what you're missing. We make this a big secret. We don't talk about it in our homes. We're not honest about God's plan for it. And so here he says, I wish that all of you, all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that gift. And he's like, some of you have been gifted with the, the need for sexual relations, and some of you have been gifted that you don't need it. That, that there's no need for that. 
And I know that for probably for some of us who have, have the gift, we don't understand the other side of that equation. But Paul clearly says that both things are a gift from God. One has this gift, the other has that. Verse 8, Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it's good for them to remain unmarried as I am. But here he is again. If you can't control yourselves, you should marry because it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And we've heard that before, right? I mean, discern what God's intention is for it in your life. And, and, and I'm just convinced that we aren't doing that. Why do you have this in us? I want to say again that these things are not society's inventions. I think society is playing with it. They're like toying with us to sell stuff. But it's God's invention in us. It's God's intent for us. It's a way that would cause young men to aspire to grow up, to grow up and pursue a godly wife. This is uh, the intent here. All right, so I've talked about um, the creation narrative, and I've talked about the Apostle Paul, which we've heard of from before, but I want to tell you a couple of things in wrapping up that Jesus taught about the same issue. So if you would turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 5, when Jesus teaches... Um, Chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Oh, let's just say 31 and 32 up there. All right, so here's Jesus teaching on the idea of divorce, separating from your wife or your husband. And it says this. It's been said that anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. You remember we talked about this a few weeks ago. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There's a lot in here, and we shouldn't be afraid of it. We should listen with God to what his scriptures say, and I've spent some time on this. I would encourage you to do the same, but I want to say this one thing, that when Jesus begins to talk about um, what marriage is about, here he makes a caveat. (laughs) Specifically, we had a runaway in the back, sorry. (laughs) Um, they wanted to come to the service. What's happening there? Jesus makes a caveat for this one issue, and it's our sexual behavior in marriage. He talks about what are the grounds for divorce. He says there's one good reason. Now, that's something to hear from Jesus, I think. It's something that he would say, here's one thing, though, that's not okay. And I want to spend just a minute talking about what the Greek is. I don't do a lot of Greek with you guys at the, you know, anymore, but uh, it's, it's pornea. That's the Greek word, pornea, right? And uh, it's where we get a word pornography from. It's where we get uh, the idea of um, uh, prostitution from. It's pornea, right? And it literally, it means um, to be selling the sex, to, to be uh, buying the sex. And you might go, well, dude, I don't do that, right? I don't do that. But how many of us have struggles like that? How many of us begin to uh, become frustrated in our relationship and we begin to look outside of our home to fulfill the desires that God put in our hearts? How many of us have decided that it's too hard to work with a real human being to fulfill my sexual desires. It's too hard to to deal with the person that God has has given to me to be my completer, my helper, and we've turned to other things that we buy. I don't buy it, it's free. No, it's not free. You're paying for it. Everybody is. See, Jesus says this is the one reason 
he mentions here, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness, the word is pornea. Causes her to become an adulteress. That's an interesting way to say that, isn't it? It's invalid. It's not God's intent. Jesus says that our behavior in marriage is a big deal. Our sexual behavior in marriage is a big deal. And it's, and it's, and it's not God-honoring to create that kind of a division in our marriage. It's not right. And indeed, it's the one thing that can destroy the marital bond quicker than anything else. We don't often want to talk about that or hear that. Um, I'm amazed, by the way. I do premarital counseling for all the folks who are getting married, and we talk about this issue. I'm always amazed by how many kids are, are raised in homes where they don't have any idea how their parents, you know, have sex. I'm not saying there should be like, you know, <laughs> like open-door policies or nothing. I mean, but they have no clue what it looks like to be intimate with somebody. They have no clue. They, they know they're born. They don't know how. Some of us prefer it that way. <laughs> it's God's intent for marriage. It's God's blessing and gift and purpose and joy. And we ought to treat it in such a way. Back up a few verses with me uh, to, to five, Matthew five twenty seven. You have heard it said, Jesus said, do not commit adultery. This is the last one we're going to stop on. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's a high standard, isn't it? He's, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. You go, well, hey, I'm faithful, my wife, man. And then he says, but I can tell you that anyone that looks at another woman lustfully has already done it in their heart. Now, some people use this verse, and I believe it's the right use of the verse to say, how many of you haven't looked at a woman lustfully? And all the guys have to raise their hand. Every, almost every dude ever raises his hand. I've looked at someone lustfully. And then they go, okay, so you're all guilty of sin. You need Jesus. That's true. We need his forgiveness, we need his salvation, we need his, his sacrifice on the cross so we can be right with God and we can't get it any other way. And that's true. But this verse has a deeper meaning as well or maybe an equivalent meaning. The, the word that's translated woman here can mean wife. It means that any man who looks at another man's wife in a lustful manner is already committing adultery in his heart. That changes the verse a little bit. Because then all of a sudden, I'm a guy. And, I, you know, and I'm, in my, um, uh, I'm in my marriage. He says, don't commit adultery. You can't commit adultery if you're not in marriage, right? And I'm in my marriage, and I begin to look at other men's wives. And it's inappropriate. And it's sinful. You go, okay, they're not married yet. They're single. I'm off the hook. It's another man's wife. It's another man's wife. And it's not okay. I tell my boys this all the time, and I don't know how well I'm doing at it, but when you're with someone else, it's someone else's wife, and it ought to be like your sister, right? Right? That's the intent that God has for us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, someone else's wife. You're already committing adultery in your heart when you're lusting after that person. Jesus teaches that our marriages honor God through fidelity. <laughs> I'm telling you, if you hear nothing else, 
if you're in a marriage right now, let all that passion turn toward your spouse. I mean, if you need help with that, ask God, God, help me turn all that passion toward my spouse. I want this beautiful, good thing to manifest in our relationship in a loving way. Help me turn it toward my spouse. And if you're not married yet, and you're like, man, I got to be married like yesterday. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's too Man, start praying that God would allow you to find a wife that you could invest in. That it be God honoring and good and a blessing to you and all those around you. It's his good gift to us. We ought not to twist it in our sinful hearts to become self-serving. The half-brother of Jesus began this way. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me because God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. We heard that earlier today, right? God is not in temptation business. But I want to see how we get here. Because the next thing that James writes is this. Each one is tempted when, by his own evil desires, he is dragged away and enticed. It's something that begins small. And we see it, and we just kind of start, mate, just, uh, and you stop focusing on your marriage, and you, stop, and you start looking around, maybe something else. You're dragged away and enticed by the evil desires in your own heart. James goes on, then after the desire has been conceived, it gives birth to sin. A real manifestation, brokenness, missing the mark, screwed up relationships, drama, trauma, hurt, pain, suffering, angst and anxiety, mistrust. All these things are manifest when we allow ourselves to be dragged away. And then here it says, give birth to sin. And sin, when it grows up, leads to death. And this is the real deal. And this is why it's such a big, um, a big deal, a big issue is that the ultimate manifestation of all the misunderstandings about the way God created our sexuality, the misunderstandings, the twisted views, the hiding in the bushes, the lack of believing that God has good gifts for us, leads us to die, to be hopelessly lost, to be separated from God. And that's the biggest deal I can think of. And it's a really, really impossible thing to overcome. So here's the deal. Many of us, maybe all of us, have some broken piece of our sexual history. Maybe it's right now. Maybe right now it's totally screwed up for you. And the great news about that gap that we can't make is that Jesus came to fill that gap. He came to call us to a higher purpose and a better life. The truth is that he came to heal us in those areas that are broken and hurting. He came to call us to better and beautiful things. And I believe that Jesus came to teach us, and Paul continues that teaching in Corinthians, the Corinthian church, that this gift is a good thing created by God to bring blessing into our lives, to bring comfort, to bring joy into our relationships, to bring commitment and steadfast love when we let it do all of its work in us. 
And so today we're going to close in prayer, but I, I want you to join me in praying. And I want you just to ask, if you have any part of your heart that's wondering, God, restore this part of my life. I mean, if you're married, pray about your marriage and ask, God, help me to understand how I can restore this part of my life. If you're single, whether that's you know, pre-married single or post-married single, whether you're in a second marriage or third or fourth, you're trying again, ask God to restore this history that you have. If you've got stuff from your childhood or stuff from your, in your own kid's life, ask him to be the healer and restore us today. He can do that work. Please pray with me if you would. Uh, Father, today we've come into your house just to hear uh, some truth about what you say about this issue that our culture talks around all the time. I don't know if all my brothers and sisters sense it, but I certainly sense that we walk this crazy environment where everything pulls on the strings in all the wrong ways, Father. And today we want to be restored to you. We pray, Father, that you would do a work in our hearts, first and foremost, that we would not be enticed by sin, that we would not be dragged away by evil desires. And Lord, you know our hearts and how dark they can be. You know the way our thinking gets twisted up. And we ask that today you restore right thinking in us, a right heart. And then, Father, in our marriages, we pray for restoration, healing, and hope. And even when our marriage is good, we pray that it be better, more glorifying to you, more fulfilling for those who are in it. Not that its purpose is here alone, but its purpose is manifest in your kingdom. In the truth of a God who would love us so much, he would not let us die separate, ashamed, and alone, but would restore us to himself. You are so good, and we deserve none of that goodness, but we ask you in your mercy and grace to provide it today. I pray for our young people here today, Father. Pray for our kids that you would help them to see rightly in this complicated environment your plans for their life. That you would speak truth to their heart that the world would not uh, you know, be able to convince them otherwise and that we would need to convince them of your goodness because your plans are better. We pray that you would help them uh, to pursue godliness in every area of their lives. Help us as um, those who have been tasked with uh, parenting and loving the, the younger generations that we would celebrate your gifts. We would not be ashamed. That we would speak truth when it's hard and that we would be loving to them no matter what. May you do a work in your people that we desperately need. Would you restore ourselves to you, Father? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.